A driving thirst for knowledge is the forerunner of wisdom. Knowledge is a state that all organic life possesses. Wisdom is the reward of the spirit gained in the search for knowledge. Robert Cochran. Today, Shani Oates sits on the black chair on a special edition of On the Black Chair called The People of Goda. We will be talking about her books one at a time and have conversations about very specific concepts and ideas. The first book is Tobello's Greenfire. In this book, we explore historical and contemporary ideas of witchcraft through the perspective of the clan of Tubal-Cain, a closed initiatory group aligned to the shadow mysteries within the Luciferian stream. Welcome to the On the Black Chair, Shani. Um, what was the impetus behind the writing of this book? I suppose is. um any pilgrim, again, on the mystery, on their path in the mystery, seeks gnosis. You seek knowledge. You seek to understand. And um, as you said yourself, um, and Robert Cochran makes several references to where we can find those mysteries, where they are properly hidden, and where they are properly revealed from. Um, and it is only by doing the work as a living tradition um, engaged in those mysteries that you will actually get the answers. Um, because it's not something that you can just conjure up. It isn't something that you can even rationalize. It is um, a revelation, a dawning, if you like, a, a literal epiphany that occurs in, in small spaces and sometimes very nice. And so by going back to look into those elements of folklore, those old tales, fairy tales, um, sagas, all of these ancient um, stories all house and hold those secrets. It's just being able to glean away all the stuff that's been wrapped around them for so many years, so many centuries in many cases, that obscure that truth. And so it's getting to the nitty-gritty, the nooks of that, to get that kernel, to get that piece of wisdom that allows you to connect the next one so that you make the pattern. You begin to see the matrix of wisdom. You begin to understand the pattern and you can see and almost begin to look for the next piece even before you found it. Um, so it's it's being able to extrapolate from all these tales what is, what's really, really being said. And that is really um, the impetus behind all of this. I took um, various elements that are well known as um, beautiful pieces of literature and um, then just literally took them down to their bare bones to try and find out what those mysteries were that were inherent within them. Um, and certain of those um, texts are pretty much um, standard texts for the mysteries in English um, literature, um, in English traditions. So um, they're pretty standard texts for most people to study. Um, and so therefore, by opening them up to scrutiny, um, this was my recorded journey of those and how I felt that they were fitted then into the male mysteries, the female mysteries and the priestly mysteries. Um, they occurred over a few years 
Um, I mean, Evan John Jones actually commissioned me to do them. He said that it would be a, the best way that I could understand them better than it could be taught because self self revelation and understanding is the best and only way to understand anything. Um, a teacher or mentor can only show you the way, and you have to find it for yourself. And so this was my journey. The compass is a concept that it's very much talked about, um, but sometimes not very clearly. Um, you do talk a lot about it in your book. Is this a working space or something more than that? Well, um, to go back just a little while, um, when you were commenting there about the the contrast and the comparisons, about um, 13 years ago when I was actually began writing for magazines and things, I felt that it was important to introduce that difference to people precisely because they were not familiar with it, and precisely because I thought it might give them a better idea of why it is different from a person who has been on both sides, so to speak. Um, and an informed opinion is always one, I think, that should be treasured for that reason. And because I have seen um, a traditional Wiccan circle raised um, in that respect and also a compass laid, I can make those comparisons. Right. Um, so I would say the space for us is one that we mark as um, a place we meet, and that's the best way in the traditional sense of, of um, our cultural heritage that we can say we come together in company at an appointed time in an appointed place. You say that working areas are not raised to contain power. Why? Um, because it is something that is so intrinsic to every space and to every element automatically, there is no need. We um, bring ourselves to the space so that we can utilize those elements by opening ourselves to them. So there is um, no need to actually try to um, raise any power because it's already there. What about not to protect? Um, we don't feel the need to do that either because um, in the space that we work, because it's open to all things, uh, we don't feel that there should be a, a need to fear what we are trying to contact. Otherwise, there's no point if you fear it. Why would you bother? Um, and it's a communication. It's an opening up to ancestral voices and spirits that have been within our culture for many thousands of years that we are familiar enough with to know we have no need to fear you reference in the book that you celebrate the will of fate. How is this different from the will of the year that uh, common pagan will know? Oh, um, I would say it is quite different, yes, in that I think the will of the pagan year is something that's a celebration of the seasons and of the way that um, emotions and tides will shift between them. Whereas I feel that the wheel of life is something that is celebrated ongoing from birth. We go through different stages in our life. So each um, knot, if you like, will represent one of those five areas of your life that is particularly pertinent. If, for instance, you're doing the right of youth 
um, in the springtime, it may not mean anything to you as an older person, a more mature person that more be resonant with um, the maturity knot that's later in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have different feelings and different um, memories that they would evoke and bring to that space. Mm-hmm. And also it would bring some resonance in their life as they move through those stages so they can remember the times that they had a, a particular epiphany or an experience that was relevant to that. And because the knots are so designed so that there are psychological as well as mythological elements in them, they are instructional and because we receive teachings from our ancestors, it's those things that we absorb and take on board when it's particularly relevant to ourselves. Solstices and equinoxes have a much longer historical magical significance than the pastoral celebrations of nature. Would you like to comment on that? Yes, they they can have. It depends on culture again. Um, They have had a a great deal of importance in the old classical world and in the ancient world as times when people would come together, particularly for the mystery tradition that they were very much the markers of the, the solar year from when we transited from the Bronze Age and we moved from sort of prehistoric religions into more cultural religions when people became established more as people, as individual identities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allowed then for those elements of the solar year to be imprinted over much, much more older stellar um, religions, and it brought people into a new era, a new age, if you like, um, even though that was 2,000 years ago. And the markers themselves being solar are the ones that denote the cardinals, and that establishes everything from the ground upwards, whether you're working in a Wiccan way to raise a circle, or in a more traditional way where you're laying the compass. The cardinal points are always aspects of that space. Samhain is and always has been uh, Halloween um, popular uh, through um, you know throughout. I mean everyone knows uh, Samhain. Even even those who are not pagan <laughs> they know Absolutely. Samhain, you know. Uh, it's a reference. Now you do make reference in the book that um, you know this is popular became popular through the migratory Celtic-speaking people. Samhain is well known as the uh, Celtic New Year. Why is this not true? Well, it's because um, I think in the historical context, it was only a sporadic um, celebration in various areas across Ireland and Gaul. Um, And in those areas, they didn't all celebrate at the same time um, because farming, seasonal, Um, changes occur at different latitudes at different times, so there was no set time. And the belief in um, ancestral traditions um, in those days, many, you know, thousands of years ago, was something that was celebrated any time, really, between May and October, depending on, again, where you were. In the wintertime, for instance, in the Nordic countries, travelling across country to celebrate and greet ancestors was almost impossible, so it was done much earlier. And the winter times for most people was very much uh, a time for pulling in the cattle, getting them um, the ones that were weak and ready for slaughter, gathering up your winter stocks, 
literally battening down the hatches. So it was a preparation for literally sitting in. There was no um, migratory um, opportunities for those. Further south, when it, where it was warmer, then yes, they would have those um, opportunities. So it was, there was a great deal of latitude in time and space, really, about what was actually celebrated. Many of the cattle that were preserved or not slaughtered had to be purified and cleansed before they were brought into the bowers in the house because they did actually share living accommodation with their animals over the winter. Right. So they were they had to be cleansed between two fires for, you know, smoke would actually get rid of a lot of the impurities and infections and things like that. So there is a um, really um, a difference, um, I, should, I should say inaccuracy, uh, between historical reality and the, and the uh, and these adjustments that were made uh, in the 18th and 19th century uh, concerning some of the festivals and ceremonies known today, I mean, uh, this is really something that sometimes people are really not conscious about. This is true, and um, <clears throat> many of the what we call the wakes weeks um, again occurred in um, anywhere between May and August. Mm -hmm. and were pretty much movable feasts. Um, when the folklorists in the 18th and 19th centuries were compiling a lot of data, um, and when the church was beginning to try to align those festivals with work, um, you know, social housing, social care, and people's ability to, again, to move around and have the opportunity to celebrate those feast days, they sort of coalesced and aligned, realigned everything and then we patterned it as a, as a new calendrical celebration. Um, so it was pretty much standardized then for people to know at what point in the year you could have a day off and go and celebrate that. Mm -hmm. uh, so everything shifted um, from its former freelance and more open opportunities. Mm. And because of that, um, then yes, these things changed dramatically. So there are many recorded instances that we have um, in folklore that don't seem to quite fit the calendar as we now have them for that reason. How are these solar festivals or minor sabbats celebrated by the clan? Mm. Well, there are, there are, for us, those are the, the ones that maintain the deepest mysteries. So they are not something that we would generally share. Um, I can say that they are relevant to our mythos and to the most profound ways in which the old Horn King, if you like, transits mm -hmm. through himself as the young Horn King um, through the ages of fate. And that is what we hold on those four occasions. Concerning um, clanship, and you talk about this in the book also, how, this, how does this notion serves the practices of the clan? Um, the the um, system itself is one that uh, facilitates the um, opportunity for people who are deeply committed to each other to feel as if they um, belong to a family and a family that is stable and has um, a hierarchy just as much as any family would with the parents and brothers and siblings. So it gives um, an automatic sense of belonging in a full sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not um, sort of, even friends can be very close, but it's not the same as a family. 
And I know a lot of people consider their groups to be to feel like family, but it allows it to do um, much more than that because it has the um, ingress then of law, um, which is established. So it has parameters and boundaries. So it gives it stability. It gives it um, a way of understanding the world mm-hmm. and their place in it. It also brings in ancient law, which is something that's kept between um, clans. And it also allows them to feel that they are protected because that is the responsibility of the head kinsman. Mm. He's very much in troth as much to his clan as they are with him. It's uh, it's, um, a gifle, if you like. It's a symbiosis. Mm -hmm. It's reciprocal. And it's very important that everybody feels that they all share equally in that gift of sacrifice and commitment to each other. There is a special fealty inherent to the Old Covenant. Why is this important and what are the differences between this sacred compact contrast with Wiccan and neo-pagan practices? It, um, in the same way that if you consider Christianity was considered the New Covenant to the Old Covenant of right. Yahweh, yeah. it's, it's very much like that. You have your own tutelary gods. With them, you um, exact a covenant with them. Mm-hmm. So they then become your your protectors, your ages. Um, so it, it goes on through the chain from people through their tutelary god through to the main gods through to creation itself, to the ultimate Godhead. So there is a constant link and a constant troth being made upwards through that. And so the Old Covenant is is a celebration of something that began, I suppose, in recorded history um, some 4,000 years ago, where you have Inanna mentioning in the Old Sumerian text, when kingship was lowered to heaven. So it's celebrating a very, very sacred period in time when the kings became priest kings through the ages of a particular goddess that became their protectress. And therefore, that covenant is, is celebrated still in the fact that we know that we have that link through the sacred to a particular feminine protector of our clan. There are also oaths taken. Uh, what is the difference between the clan oaths and those taken by, for instance, the Wiccan and high priest and high priestess? Um, I would say the difference there in in Wicca, um, and I, obviously there I'm a bit tired because I would be breaking mine to explain that. Um, <laughs> but in, uh, all I can say by contrast is what they are for us in the clan. Um, in the clan, they are. Um, an oath is amongst the people. It's shared equally, and it, what it offers is a bond, a bond that is to each other, and it is witnessed by the gods. It isn't a um, an oath that might declare, for instance, by example, that um, I'm going to do this and I'm going to say this. It's a bond that is witnessed by God in that you say, we are this. Together, we collectively believe this and we hold this to be true and our truth is witnessed by you. And therefore, um, we are honoured by the witnessing and the blessing that that God bestows upon that. 
Mm. And because it's it's given in, in that sort of loyalty and in that truth, it's all about maintaining the honour of the word. And it's, it's very much about the honour of the word. It isn't about self-cursing or or any such horrors like that. It's not about weapons turning against you or, or um, dissolving into a puff of smoke if everything goes wrong. It's a simple matter of you being honourable. You've made your trough and you stay true to that word. Going back to the law, do not what you desire, do what is necessary. How does need become the catalyst for change? Because it presents itself through fate as a circumstance that has to be addressed. It's one that forces itself. It is needful. It is literally that. Whereas what you might desire is something that you choose. And something that is needful, there is no choice but to deal with it. Um, Something that is needful is something generally so much greater than the self. And is generally for the greater good or betterment of everyone around you. Mm-hmm. So it usually involves something incredibly profound. And even if it's on a personal level, the needful shift is something that will um, progress you and evolve your own um, journey as a pilgrim into the mysteries. In the book, you talk about virtue. You go in and you define what virtue is. And then you talk about virtue of the blood. What is virtue of the blood and, and how is it important? That is our spiritual virtue um, that resides. And again, there are different types of blood virtue as well. Mm-hmm. There's the family um, blood virtue, there is personal blood virtue, and then there is still divine blood virtue. So they still, they still, they still have differences. There is also the presence of the tutelary spirit itself which is attached to um, virtue and works through virtue with the head kinsman. Um, so there are still different levels of virtue even amongst that. It's, it's a very complex system, but basically, it's in all simplicity, it is simply varying degrees of um, qualities that we each have, that we are able to explore and expand, and that we evolve through as individuals, collectively, and um, with our relationship with each other and, and our tutelary gods. Exploring a little bit about the magister role within the clan, if the magister doesn't have uh, the maiden with him, how does this change his role within the clan? He becomes a guardian for it. Um, this is very much what John, Evan John Jones, had to do for several decades. Mm-hmm. Um, he holds it. He holds it in, in right and truth. And he has to wait until, um, obviously, there is a maid. What it basically means for him is that he um, leads still, um, because the magister is the leader. And he is enabled by law to maintain its principles, its ethos its methods, to continue to hold its teachings, to ensure its survival, and to ensure that people are still brought into its mysteries. It's it's simply that there is one particular element missing. But he is very much the guardian, whether the maid is there or not. 
what is a clan totem and what is its importance? A totem, in, in the most traditional and open sense that most people would be familiar with it from the old world, it is simply something that creates a, an image, an iconic image, that is imbued with virtue of, the, of its gods. Mm-hmm. Um, it is something that is portable, and it is something that brings its own presence into the space. And it represents um, the qualities and virtues of that. As well as imbuing them, it has symbols that um, act as mnemonics and as, um, as guides. So it inspires just by looking at it, even if you don't understand symbology, they work psychologically um, just infused so that they work um, so that you get some sort of understanding automatically at a subconscious level that might make itself known later. So it works subliminally as well as, as literally. So they are very important and we have several of them. People of Goda, it, it's, a, it's a term. It's, it's actually um, a, a way of... of designating uh, the clan or the people that belong to the clan. And, and Robert Cochran had a, a very interesting perspective on this. Um, what, what is the origin of this term? Um, I think in all uh, northern traditions especially, um, and even across um, most of Asia and Eurasia, even down into Iberia and some parts of the classical Mediterranean world, um, clans always refer to themselves as people of. Um, there's the, um, the Celtic-speaking peoples, and they would, even in Native America, they're the people of their ancestors. So they are, in, they are the end of the line as far as their current situation goes, and they will, of course, continue those. So it's wherever you are in a point of time, you are the collective identity of all of your ancestors, wherever they've roamed across the world you represent them at that point. So you are the people of all those ancestors, all their beliefs, all their mysteries, all their folklore, uh, cultural identity. You hold that in the moment, in the now, mm-hmm. and you carry that forward for the next generation. So by saying you are the people of a particular thing, you are stating quite dramatically everything that you hold from, from, the, from year one. How do you see Ecate? Um it looks like there is a big movement nowadays of, of devotion towards her. I am interested in knowing what is your perspective about this particular goddess, uh, related to the clan, of course. Um, well, I think in, in Robert Cochran's letters, he mentions to Bill quite simply um, that Hermes, Saturn, and Hecate are just names that we would use, are the closest approximations what we believe because of course we do not give out the names of, of what we believe of course. And, we, and so he's making a comparison to Bill Gray who was used to a particular view of Hecate which has changed dramatically particularly over the past few years and yes. certainly the past 40 or 50 since he was talking to Bill yes. which then had a very very classical perspective of her and so their understanding with each other as they were talking um, on that level, would have been in her as um, a very archaic primal force. Um, something that, as you say, is triform, 
and something that is um, multifaceted, as, as Robert Cochran explains as well. She's mm-hmm. multidimensional. She is not something you can pin down. Um, she's not young. She's not old. She is, she is all. She's a totality. And she's um, a dark, as in ancient and old force. She is unpredictable and unseen. But she is also um, all-encompassing. So she, she is there and she is um, something that we hold dear because she's as, as imminent as she is transcendent. Let's talk about dance. <laughs> okay. Many ecstatic dances are practiced in, in, in a diversity of cultures, um, religion, um, religious uh, practices, etc. in many, many cultures uh, all over the world. Um, how is this related with the eternal cosmic rhythm of the universe? And, and, and also, how does it relate with particularly Lilith and Inanna? Um, well, I'll focus more on Inanna um, because I think Lilith is something that could perhaps be an entire um, missive on its own, yeah. really, uh, especially, um, you know, the complexity yes. of that. But as regards the Inanna, um, the rhythm of Inanna is simply the one that is, again, something that celebrates the divinity amongst mankind. It's when we were supposedly noticed as um, a being on the planet, if you like, and began a serious interaction of devotion with our gods. And there are many prayers and beautiful mystery traditions that were um, developed around that time. Um, mainly to goddesses, in um, very profound and deep ways. And so the cosmic rhythm in the dance really is one that is of creation. It is one that sings the song of the beauty of life, the beauty of death, and the beauty of everything that exists between that, that she has facilitated. Mm -hmm. So all the ecstatic dances that we can possibly imagine to take place are all in honor of that beautiful um, gift. And it's one that we all share, I think, as human beings. We have a basic intrinsic nature to to just dance when we feel happy, um, dance when we have um, a primal urge or a need. We move, we shift. And the transaction that occurs from that shift in magic is one where we project ourselves out into that cosmos to be part of that cosmic rhythm and dance. So what begins in the flesh on the earth ends up in, in the ether, if you like. You talk about um, the hand of Fatima, or Fatima, some people call it Fatima, Fatima. Um, because I'm Portuguese, I just say Fatima. That's what it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and uh, so how, how does the hand of God or the hand of fate extends through time and across many cultures? That's the $60,005 million question. How right. are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think any one of us could answer that. It simply is. It's present. <clears throat> and I think we've all been given um, various tools through our culture to um, access the mysteries in order to be able to understand that hand and movement of fate because it is only by knowing it that we can overcome it. And every um, tradition that is based upon those mysteries is one that seeks to understand that movement. We're going back to um, 
uh, you know, the, the, the powerful um, feminine mysteries and female mysteries. Uh, how does a, a source of, of tribal protection and universal symbol for the Yoni, um, veiled in this black stone um, of, of Kiba at Mecca, relates with uh, with um Shilana gig um it's anything that's um uh of stone that is uh, representative of something that can fall from the sky as a comet or a meteorite um that is indicative of firestone in particular um volcanic rock igneous rock um, and meteorites in particular anything that can be seen to to have fallen from the sky is particularly um, seen as a gift from the gods. Therefore, it is to be revered, and it is uh, one that is very much placed in um, a place as an icon. And um, and this is is basically what has happened with with many of the the things like the Kaaba. And um, there was one to Kibeli that's actually under the Vatican at the moment. Um, that's to be very much uh, open, but is no longer available for our worship. Um, but all of these things in, in the past were given special places and people came to pay homage and pilgrimage to them. And Mecca is pretty much the only one that is left standing um, for people to pilgrim to. Um, so obviously centuries later, the idea of something that has that presence and that power to um, sort of manufacture um, an energy force that we can feel, that we can touch and connect with, is something that then began to materialise in the grotesque and the Romanesque um, carvings of the early medieval period. Um, because people were obviously travelling to the um, Arabic countries and Middle East and recognising um, that these things were still around and seeing that how they were used, they brought those ideas back into England and northern France. And they um, made these carvings um, apotropaic in many respects. Mm -hmm. And um, most of them, again, to, um, to work against the evil eye, which, again, is, is pretty much a Middle Eastern concept. Um, and, and having these things brought back, particularly through the Vikings um, and other migrants, is something that it, it was grew into the fear of the medieval period. It fed into that mm -hmm. um, unknown need to avert it. So these things were very much a, a creation of many, many influences. And so the end result, if you like, from a meteorite that fell from the sky to the shield in the gig is, is one that encompasses a whole long history of, of trying to solve um, ways in which we can protect ourselves through something that is the gift of the gods. You said in the book that, that uh, and I quote, sometimes in order to understand what we are doing here and where is it, it, it is taking us, we need to take a shift backwards to move forward. How can the cult of the dead provide an insight into our real heritage as human beings? Um, I think um, I'm not alone in, in believing that... Um, in order to understand how we need to move forward, we need to know how we even arrived at this point. And I think looking back to our ancestors is something mankind has always drawn a great deal of comfort from, as well as um, gnosis, um, because again, it comes back to carrying the heritage of our forefathers with us. 
And if we feel that we have lost that, the way to regain it or remember it if we haven't lost it is by always drawing from that source. It is always to plumb that well and by weaving ourselves backwards into those eras, into those people, into their mindsets, into their lives, we're able to pull back into our own time, their strength, their understanding, um, their revelation, their ways of dealing with things so that we can take that forward again maintain those abilities and the divinatory um, processes that accompany those beliefs are what allows us to keep um, even closer contact with those ancestors. Robert said, um, or wrote, um, in fate and the overcoming of fate lies the true grail. Mm -hmm. What can you say about this? Um, this is a very, very profound statement that it has, <laughs> uh, it is incredibly profound, and I think it's been one that's captivated a lot of people over the years, and rightly so, because it, it actually um, explains how we live in at the, at the mercy of fate, but not being fatalistic about that. You don't accept that as red. That's not at the end of it. By understanding it, you don't buck your fate. You don't ride against it. You go with the tide. You understand it. You overcome it. And by overcoming it, you are released from fate. Because fate only exists in time. It doesn't exist in eternity. There is all of, which is eternal law, that you are released into. And that is a different level entirely. You are released from the earthly levels of time and fate. Let's talk about the tree of good and evil. There is one of the uh, chapters of the book that is it's entitled to the fruit of wisdom. Genesis, the myth of the fall. And you say that Genesis 2.17 says, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat it, you shall die. And then you say, well, in Genesis 3, 4, 5, it says also the serpent offers us a, a perplexing um, alternative. It says, you will not die, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, you, you, do a, you, you make a question here. And this is exactly the question that I'm going to make, uh, that I'm going to ask you. Why has inheriting this knowledge been considered a sin and a transgression against God? I think it's only been considered a sin in certain circumstances um, by a very small um, group um, of faith-based people. I think um, it has become a sin for that reason to them. I don't think that anyone that believes in the mystery traditions themselves have believed it is a sin, which is why those people were considered heretics. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is to open your eyes to the knowledge and wisdom um, of everything, to know the extremes of all possibilities, which is to break the boundaries that a um, strict liturgy would impose against. So to demand those freedoms would be considered a sin against that. 
but it is in fact only a secular sin. It is one that's not permitted in a very limited law. Um, but as humans, as free people under the aegis of the old God, we are entitled to those wisdoms and we all seek them freely. Robert said, um, and, and I'm going to quote him from the book, uh, all that can be said about the mysteries has already been written into folklore, myth, and legends. What is not forthcoming is the explanation. It was recognized that these legends, rituals, and myths were the roads through the many layers of consciousness to the era um, of the mind where the soul can exist in its totality. These uh, and their surrounding disciplines and teachings become what the West described as the mysteries. Can you, um, then this goes into, of course, you know, uh, one of the chapters you talked about, the three rings and or the three rites, um, a trion uh, compass. Um, what is the importance of this, um, of these rites? Why are they important, these three rings or three rites? Because they allow us to um, formulate our compass in ways that we can particularly um, manipulate our own transcendence into, um, if you like, the, the virtues of those um, particular modes of working. Um, the mode you would wish to um, develop for divination would be very, very different for, for communion. So um, the space would need to feel different, your movements would need to be different, and the tools you would employ would need to be different. The dynamic of where you place your tools would need to be different. So the three rites address very different modes of working. They address very different realms that those virtues are accessed through. Um, so we make those distinctions only so that we can, as a mnemonic, actuate them um, to their to their absolute capability. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, again, going to quote Robert, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is always a pleasure, isn't it? It is an absolute pleasure. It, it is. So he said, um, the faith is finally concerned with truth, total truth. It is one of the oldest of religions and also one of the most potent, bringing as it does men into contact with gods and men into contact with self. Um, again, very profound. Would you mind to, to um, comment on this one? It is a beautiful statement. It is. It's a beautiful statement. And as you say, it does relate to the three rings that he also mentions himself, um, because there are the three rites themselves are dedicated to, in particular, the virtues of truth, love and beauty, which is what his entire um, belief is, is formulated upon. So each of those spaces is um, enveloped by that particular virtue and worked towards it. Um, so therefore, when he, when he speaks of um, man in contact with the gods and with himself, he's saying that um, the communion, the love agape, if you like, the point of, of which we are, have the union with Sika in the mysteries, that conjunction is, is something that we work towards in all of those, 
um, it wouldn't really matter which one. There is a point at which you would access them, be it for divination, um, for magic or communion. There are different degrees in which you engage that communion um, because all of these magics are only available to us as, as human beings because of that. So therefore, there is nothing that would separate us from it. And there is only the deeper engagement of it um, with the full commitment and understanding that that would engage. Well, thank you so much uh, for being on the Black Chair and um, for sharing with us your thoughts on this uh, book, um, Tubala's Green Fire. And um, we'll look forward for the next one. Thank you very much. Thank you.